You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. I'm joined by playwright Patricia Cornelius and director Susie D to talk about a double bill of plays by Patricia, Love and Shit at 45 Downstairs. Hello, lovely to have you both Hi, in. Hi, Thank you, Richard. It's nice to be here. Now, this is a kind of exciting double bill of works uh, because not only are you performing them and presenting them in Melbourne, well, you're not performing them, you're presenting them in Melbourne, and then you're taking them to the Venice Biennale. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. From 45 <laughs> Downstairs to Venice. <laughs> Patricia, how did that come about? Well, Susie and I didn't even know that the Venice Biennale had a, a, a theatre festival and until Susie was um, contacted and he knew about Susie, the, the director knew all about Susie's work and then learnt that she worked with this other person, me, and <laughs> read the works and he's taken us, them on. It's wonderful. That's fantastic. So we were in a bit of disbelief for a while. I so. um, got contacted through my... Thea- I have a theatrical agent for my acting work and the theatrical agency said, look, this guy, um, Italian man, is asking if you can have your email. He says he's from the Venice Biennale Theatre Festival. And I got off the phone and I laughed. I went, oh, who's being cheeky? Who's being naughty? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and then I looked up his name and went, oh... I didn't even know there was a theatre festival. You know, we all hear about the big visual art festival. And so, yeah, he was very interested a couple of years ago in, in, in works like Animal and Shit and much more physical pieces. But this year he's focusing on directed dramaturg relationship. And then he said, hmm, the work with Miss Cornelius looks very interesting. I said, oh, it's very interesting. <laughs> well, given that he's interested in focusing on those sorts of relationships, it kind of makes sense, given that the, the two of you have got, what, a 30-year-plus history of working together. Susie, you di- directing Patricia's work, but also, I presume, being a dramaturg on it to a significant degree as well. Oh. I, I'm not sure about that. I, oh, I'm sure about I, that. She, we oh, have here this we go. Argument here we go. She thinks that, uh. that dramaturgy isn't part, part of the director's eye and, and there's no way that I don't sh- change things and shift things and reconsider order, re- you know, all the things that a dramaturg- so, dramaturgy person does. So you're saying all directors are dramaturgs? No. But some are. <laughs> yeah. And you are. Oh. Anyway, let's move on, Richard. Let's move <laughs> it's like on. It's a dirty yeah. word or something. It's actually quite... It's very interesting that the skill. Other, um, when you look at the VNS, Viennale, the Biennale Theatre Festival program, most of the works are incredibly um, imagistic. They're very, yeah, physical. There's not much text-based work. So it's it's going to be a total surprise for these um, this audience to see a work, two works like Shit and Love. Uh, yeah, Doing the, the surtitles was a bit... Of it, kind of a, a comedy act, you know, kind of thinking, oh my mm. God, how many shits and are we, other are we words allowed to swear on Triple R? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give a language warning for the rest of this interview. Uh, If you are offended by the occasional word you might hear on a tram, on the street, in the schoolyard or on uh, television after about 8.30pm, go make yourself a cuppa and come back in about 10 minutes. Okay. Yes, you can swear. Cunt, for example, cunt. Like in Italian, there's three three versions of cunt and they're asking me which version do we want (laughs) for cunt and I go... Don't know. So we've been sort of getting sort of some feedback from Italian speakers, but it's it's, it's continuous like that. So, so the subtlety of swearing <laughs> yeah. playing out and trying to work out the appropriate 
various different yeah, that's fascinating yeah it is, yeah, it it is. is. It's, it's, yeah. it's great so and also we do Australians swear their heads off we're yeah. a, a country of great swearers really but and the kind of multitude of of meaning I mean, like you, you shit me Richard you know just tonally you know that uh, that means I love you rather rather than you know the, the, you shit me but I love kind of the idea <laughs> that in the same way that uh, in uh, Italian you might have multiple different words for love, we have the one word uh, and which we use to mean the, the love of a mother, the love <laughs> of a brother, the love of a lover, the love of a friend. Uh, the idea that we just use that one word as opposed to the different words, the different subtle gradients. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now... Of the two, the two works that you're taking over, uh, I'm very familiar with Shit, which is the story of um, three kind of broken women who are nonetheless strong. Uh, but I, I haven't seen Love, and I found this great uh, kind of line describing it from the Sydney season in 2018 that just described it as a raw, ferocious love between damaged souls. It's oh, a pretty good description. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and it's like Shit. It's a three-hander. Yeah. But this one's um, two women and one man, and um, he he causes a great disturbance between them. But but their love is is probably the the primary love in the story. So it's two women who've met in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fallen in love, and then the man comes along and and disrupts. Yeah. 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 Um, Pretty classic story, I think. Yeah. Um, and then shit, as we said, is uh, kind of again a three-hander with three women. Uh, what's it like revisiting these works? This is the first time for Susie with Love, so it's t- fabulous to have her on and her perception, her dramatisation. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the script is published. <laughs> no, um, I, I Tricia won at, um, the Wild Cherry Award for Love in. Maybe it was fourteen years, 14 years ago, and I actually, I, I actually was had the, I was blessed to actually direct that the first reading. Yeah, it was at the art centre, so I, I feel I've always loved the work, and it was great pleasure directing the reading. Um, so yeah, to, to take it on now, uh, it's 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 great. I love, I still, I love the characters, I love the language, yeah, and I still think all the themes are potent and yeah, um, necessary for us to sort of. Engage with these characters. You know, it's a little bit like shit. These, they're all the real. The whole six characters are. They're all damaged souls. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's always there's. As Patricia's always said, there's great drama in um, these characters. So I think it's a great time to put these works on. Why? Why? Because there is a lot of damage out there. I think. You know, I think the entertainment that we see these days. It's still, it's still a bit on the light and fluffy side. We don't dig deep enough into our souls. I don't think we observe enough in our daily life. We live in our little, you know, our little boxes, and I think it's our, our worlds are limited. So I think it's good to expand and to, yeah, see these characters up front and see the nuances and the depths and, you know... Yeah, um, the fullness of these characters. Also politically, I think there's been a shift since Howard in relationship to um, the public's attitude towards uh, the disenfranchised and and the kind of underclass that is growing and the kind of absolute lack of care 
um, some sort of notion that's there to blame rather than the society that we that they live in and there's no responsibility for their pulling us back they um, there's some they're kind of refuse on the on the horizon and that there is a kind of a feeling that people have very very um, feel very um, angry about them and you sort of think for God's sake well, have a have a look. What's happening? These people are real for a start, and they're and in, mostly the theatre doesn't represent them, and so we forget about them or we don't like them. And when the theatre does represent them, or when they're perhaps represented in other media, in film or TV, often it en- tends to lean towards. Uh, kind of poverty porn, yeah. kind of uh, a kind of some sentimentality, or or yeah. a titillating depiction of of, of poverty mm-hmm. and and disadvantage, which is something that has never been true of your work. That you kind of you make these people as uh, volatile and and angry and spiteful and and spitting at the world as they are, you still make them sympathetic and nuanced in your writing. Talk to us about the challenge of creating these characters so that they are richly realised and, and fully dimensioned as opposed to being 2D caricatures. I think, oddly enough, it's a kind of a bit of a literary-like um, trick in it because I think Love, which I wrote about 14 or 15 years ago, is the very first of that kind of grungy poeticism that I like to play with. And that I don't, that's not just being playful because I like the sound of it, but I do. But, I, but I, it's also a way of kind of being seductive with a language that is usually... Um, too hard on one's ears. Like the, the vernacular is great and and has a great power. We're frightened. We're frightened of it. When when people let rip in the tram or the train, we we turn our backs on it. We re- makes us really nervous. And um, because it does express a, a, an incredible anger and disdain for a world that has done them wrong. And um, so, but to be able to use that language in its real tones is kind of killing and hard for us to deal with so to a sort of lapped upon the the fun of, of of a weird poetic grunge in it and and i think that that's quite seductive so that you can um get get into sort of seduce people so that you don't walk out because you go oh, i know those people and i can't stand them listen to the way they speak you you kind of um a little bit entranced and of course comedy always is seductive in it as well and susie having that kind of uh poetic rhythm in the writing what does that then allow you as a director to bring out both emotionally with the text but physically on the stage? Well, yeah, it's, it's fantastic because you can embrace it physically, the dramaturgy, the actual stories. You can. They, uh, hopefully we're working with the actors, really working within their bodies and responding to the text and allowing space in the text. As Patricia said, the characters are pretty volatile and angry but there's beautiful vulnerability, there's beautiful nuance. So taking that into the body, not just talking heads, really immersing you know the veins are sort of filling up there's you know the the the, the fingers are tingling so yeah just expanding that into um body and simplicity i mean the works both works are really 
we're sort of putting them in a very simple um, set. We're not complicating it. We're not being very literal. So it really is up to the words and the bodies to sort of, yeah, make this work live. I was going to ask about the set because the set for Shit was kind of a big solid wall pierced by, by windows and with mirrors positioned so that we could sometimes observe what's going on behind it while a lot of the drama plays out uh, at the front of the stage. Um, are you Have you created some kind of simpler version of that set to tour? Yeah, we ha- we've had to. Marg's redesigned the set. It's much simpler. It's not a huge big wall anymore. <laughs> it's, it's more like a half a wall uh, because we're actually also taking shit, not just to Venice, but we're also taking shit to Edinburgh. And in the Edinburgh Festival, you know, there's a lot of performances, a lot of plays, so you have to share the venue and there's very quick turnaround. So we had to create a set that could be pulled apart in 15 minutes and put back in 15 minutes. So, yeah, a simpler version... But, um, yeah, we're restate, re- re-blocking the, the whole work but trying to sort of contain the essence and it's great to... I feel like we're going to reinvent little moments. And it's lovely that with uh, taking shit uh, from f- uh, on the road uh, from 45 downstairs together with love to, to Venice and then shit onto Edinburgh, you've reunited the original cast for the production as well. So Peter Brady, Sarah Ward, Nikki Wilkes, the three of them are um, frightening on stage <laughs> together but also joyous to watch. Yeah. They're so loyal. They're, I mean, I don't, I don't think we'd have a choice to get rid of them in a million years. No. So they they kind of own it and they're, they're, it, it's, it's wonderful to work with actors that are, are so kind of go for it and, and are willing to be re- reveal so much about themselves in the performance. Beautiful. And work. what about the cast for Love? Ah, oh, terrific. Mm. Got um, Tali Faraday, Carly Shepherd, and Ben Nickel, three young actors. Um, they're physical. They both. They've all come from a sort of. They've all got a little bit of a dance background. So they embrace the body, um, and they're really gutsy, just like the shit girls. They go there. They're visceral. They embrace the language, and there's great um, pleasure and frisson with the three of them. So I think it's hopefully just as dynamic as the shit girls. It's been <laughs> lovely having you both in the studio. Thank Thanks, you. Richard. Thanks, Richard. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. R. Joining us to tell us more, two of the performers, Chris Ryan and Mike McLeish. Gentlemen, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Good to see you. Good to see you both. Uh, although, I'm, Chris, I'm peering at you through around microphones, so I, I yeah. don't see is quite the right word. <laughs> I'll but, shift a little. Uh, yeah. But uh, then also the listeners can't see us anyway, so it's all good. <laughs> I didn't need to tell them that. So um, I found a, the, one of the descriptions that uh, intrigued me about Lazarus, uh, The Guardian... Uh, Michael Billington could not find a way to describe it as a show and ended up saying it's part sci-fi story, part rock concert, part video installation, part study in alienation. How do you guys describe it to people? Go on, Chris. You well, start. I think that sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, I think I think most of us have a similar uh, response when people say, you know, what is this thing? And it is it is hard to describe. Um, I guess it goes under the uh, the banner of musical, but I don't think it's um, anything uh, like a musical anyone's probably seen before. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I, I think I've more approached it as a as a play with um, with songs um it's kind of almost maybe a little bit brechtian in the way it works but yeah we do have a lot of video installation as well um and it is i mean you've got a handful of kind of hits uh, bowie hits but then um some more obscure stuff and also 
songs that he wrote especially for the production as well so um yeah it's kind of an eclectic mix it's a play meets a it's certainly not a jukebox musical <laughs> but um i know he put it to ender walsh the playwright he sort of said like i think he gave him some cds and said have a listen to these and you tell me which songs you think fit best within what you're writing so the whole thing feels a bit like a Bowie song, I often say. You know, it's very cut up and kind of eclectic and um, and it kind of... Uh, I don't know, that, that's part of the world. It's a guy kind of losing his, losing his mind and perhaps dying or perhaps trying to return to his home planet. We don't know. Um, it, I think it's, it's a piece that you can bring a lot to as an audience as well. So um, it's really one of the most fascinating kind of pieces of work I've, I've come across, definitely. So, um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> now, uh, reading uh, an article about the show, I know that Bowie apparently said, well, he wondered if it could be made to feel like a dream experienced in the rush of death, if it could be like a swamping dose of morphine, if it could be as abstract as a rock video. Does that resonate with you, Mike? Yeah, it does. And it doesn't surprise me that he would be so demanding about what he wanted the show to be. Um, that definitely does resonate because there's there's absolutely a, a very, very dreamlike quality to the show. Um, Thomas Newton, who Chris plays, there's this, there's a sense that almost everything you're seeing in the show is something that's coming out of Newton's mind. So it's you're never really sure whether you're watching something that's happening in the real world or whether you're watching something that's part of a dream or part of a descent into madness or part of an ascent into wherever he might want to get to. Um, so I think all of those things are definitely are definitely rolled into it. It has this really um, uncanny beauty about it, the whole thing. Uh, I think what Chris said, uh, relating it, you know, comparing it to a David Bowie song is... is really spot on because like many Bowie songs you might not be able to immediately reach out and grab the meaning of it but you can feel the effect it has on you and it sparks different thoughts for different people I mean like any great music or great art people are going to take different things from it it's going to be a very subjective experience um, and you know with Michael Cantor at the helm of this that's definitely what we're trying to how we're trying to present this show we're not trying to be prescriptive in any way because it's just too broad and weird and wonderful a beast to try and say, here's what's happening now. So we just do the, you know, the best we can with um, the incredible script and the equally incredible songs. And, and, and like Chris said, there's, there's, you know, the audience is, is uh, I mean, like in any theatrical production, but in this show, more than any, that sort of shared experience of trying to figure out what this is. Um, it's just as much the audience's responsibility as, as it is ours. I'm, I was thinking on the way here on the... Uh, normally I would be on the tram, but Roadworks, Nicholson Street, so sitting in a taxi, <laughs> trying to ignore what was being uh, played on the radio in the taxi and think about this as a, as a work of art. And it struck me that you know, Michael Cantor is kind of the perfect director for it, thinking back to the work that he used to direct at the Malthouse when he yep. was the artistic director, mm. for example, the kind of mashups of kind of genre and theatrical style that he used to work with. Uh, he really yeah. does seem kind of a, a, a very fitting choice to kind of create a, a world of artifice and magic and, and dream and madness kind of on stage. Absolutely, yeah. You, and from day one, you've just, you know, just kind of 
felt Michael kind of in his element, really. He's kind of done a lot, you know, he spent a lot of time um, before we hit the room, obviously, really nutting out what he wanted to do and working with um, Natasha Pincus, the um, video installation artist. Um, and I must say, yeah, he's just he's just had some of the most brilliant ideas. It's And it's in terms of putting together, you know, to, from reading the piece off the page and kind of going like, how, how the hell are you going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> to walk into a rehearsal room with a director that's obviously kind of like spent a lot of time kind of immersed in it and is just kind of going, this happens, this happens, and then we're over here and this happens and, you know, um, and you're kind of like, okay, all right, and then it gets up on its feet and it's, I mean, it, it's just felt like spot on. Like it, it has felt like a really great fit for the piece, absolutely. Yeah, and he's just been just endlessly excited and excitable. Yeah. So early on he was sort of apologising for how excited he was and tell me if I'm speaking too fast. I was just, <laughs> but he just, he just, he, he loves it sick and, and, it, and it really shows. Yeah. He's given it his all. And sometimes we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't know what special effects or things were happening, you know, but Michael has it in his mind. So you'd get to the end of a scene and then he'd be kind of like, and then bang! And like, explosion! <laughs> and I'm like, what? What explosion? <laughs> what is the explosion? That's not in the script. You'll okay. see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're finding out now. Now, the character of uh, Thomas Newton is uh, from uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was uh, a novel and then a film starring Bowie, a very kind of um, unusual film, to say the least. It's, it's very unusual. Uh, <laughs> and So is this a sequel to The Man Who Fell to Earth or is it just a continuation? It feels... I feel like it's more of a continuation. It feels like, you know, he's... I think... I guess that ca character being an alien, the whole kind of Starman thing, I think, um, yeah, it's uh, from what I've read as well, it's just something that always, has, you know, lingered with Bowie and, uh, yeah, it feels like def definitely a continuation and, I mean, he was facing death as well, like Black Star, the album, and this were his, the last things he ever did. Um, I think he passed away two weeks after it opened in New York. So it does feel like he's taken something from the past and put it very much into, you know, um, the present of what he was, you know, facing and going through. And yeah. taking it from the past, putting it in the present, but also keeping it alive as well. Don't yeah, it, absolutely. As an artist, it must have been fascinating for him to know that he was making something, uh, literally as he's dying, he's putting his final energy into something that will live on after him. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a... It's a difficult thing to, to unpack entirely when, you know, when you start thinking about it and when someone's faced so um, abruptly with their with their mortality and their impending death. And, I mean, it's sort of unsurprising that someone like David Bowie just went, right, well, how can I make this into a great piece of art? How can I funnel this into what I've done my entire life? And there's... I mean, that that's why I think particularly in this... It's it's no surprise I think that he wanted to revisit this character of of, of Thomas Newton, who's who's constantly you know he's he's grappling with the idea of, you know, is he a man with a death wish? Is he a man that wants to get back to his home, to where he belongs, and struggling with all of those things that that come with it? Um, the fact that he poured all of that you know into an album like Black Star and into Lazarus, that's why there is this. Um, I think that's one of the main reasons that there's this innate beauty about it because it just has all of that all of that incredible open passionate fearless 
approach to all of those things that people really want to talk about or, or face up to. Um, and it's got, unsurprisingly, again, because of, I mean, Ender Walsh and Bowie, it's got this amazing sense of humour about it too. You know, it's not this bleak meditation. It's 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 funny. There are some really funny moments and it, it's a very, it's a very um, human show for all of its explorations of the nature of what it is to be an alien. It's, it's, there are some very real human relationships in the show and some very, uh, and a very real sense of humour. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the David Bowie and Ender Walsh musical Lazarus being presented here in Melbourne by the production company and my guests are Mike McLeish and Chris Ryan who are performing in the show. Uh, it's got a much longer run than uh, a, a usual show for the production company. There's a real sense that, that not only are they starting the year with a bang by presenting a David Bowie musical, which I've got friends flying over from Perth to see. There's that much interest <laughs> in it. But uh, also that they're going, right, let's commit to this as a, as a serious piece of work. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, it's a huge step for the production company. You know, it's... Um, you know, I, I, was, I was, you know, equally surprised and just like so kind of excited that they kind of took it on it's not like they kind of took any kind of baby steps towards this piece as well like it's um you know it's it's pretty out there um and awesome but uh yeah so it's um and yeah like you say an extended extended run we've yeah, had a 27 performances instead of the standard 11 performances so. yeah that's right yeah. so and uh, we've had a little bit more time to work on it than usual as well because it's, you know, I guess because of the complexity of the piece. But, um, yeah, it's it's and it's and the sort of piece you want a bit of a longer run out as well and, uh, you know, and it's got certainly got the appeal to be, you know, bringing people in from Perth at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at I least think, Perth. And I really I, I agree with, with Chris, you know, about the, the production company putting on a show like this. It's, you know, they've got a pretty, pretty well-established and successful business model and I really love seeing a company like the production company, you know, displaying, I suppose what I'd call it, an, un an unnecessary courage. Do you know what I mean? They didn't, they didn't have to take a, a leap like this, mm -hmm. um, and yet they have. And I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a risk, but it's definitely, you know, it, it's a big step to the left. It's a big departure for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way they've kind of got behind it as well, the way we've felt so supported and oh, how yeah. excited they are about the piece. It's yeah. just like, you did did Brigadoon in <laughs> Oklahoma but you see like they're just like through the roof with enthusiasm for this so yeah. it's yeah um, they are it's it's awesome yeah now I guess the the question that has to be asked were either of you Bowie fans before you got involved with the show or were you just people who <laughs> okay Mike just flashed his t-shirt at me yeah, yeah okay. I know it was a Bowie t-shirt that was actually accidental when I put this on this morning but yeah um yeah. I don't know I I you know I think we all know Bowie fans like proper Bowie fans, and I, I, I wouldn't dare to call myself one of those people. I used to work with yeah. one who, he was so upset when Bowie died that he took three or four days off work because he yeah. was grieving. Yeah. As, oh, a, as a absolutely. kid in England, he used to follow, as a teenager in, in his 20s, he used to follow Bowie around the country to concert after concert after concert. For him, yeah. it was like the loss of a father or something. Like a yeah. Absolutely. And, and someone, you know, an artist that's been with you for so long and been part of so many defining moments in your life. And so, look, I mean, I... I I grew up really loving everything that I saw of of Bowie and all of you know for like a lot of people who who just would have been exposed to his hits. Um, I remember when I first saw the video for Ashes to Ashes, I just found it the, the creepiest thing I'd ever seen, and and I didn't like it. I was like, that really unnerves me. I don't <laughs> like how that makes me feel. I mean, I still would have been pretty young at the time, but um, 
I hadn't been exposed to something like that, you know, within the realm of pop music. I'd never seen something like that that was sort of captivating and unnerving, and I, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, un- I didn't understand it. Um, but I mean, it's through the process of doing this show, and over the once I found out about it and that I'd, I'd be a part of it, um, I've done a lot more listening and a lot more reading, and um, I'm, I'm catching up, Richard. I'm catching up, and I, <laughs> I think I've reached. Compared to you know friends of mine who are a hundred percent Bowie fans, I think I think I've reached about about a fifty seven percent level <laughs> of their fandom. But, yeah. but it's but it's 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 an exponential growth. And Chris, yeah, yeah. no, I must say, I mean, I'm kind of like you know the hits basically, um, but yeah, certainly certainly much more a fan now. It's um, I mean it was just hard to know where to start with him as well. Like just a huge, huge, like I've likened it before to, you know, someone that like their life work is like an, an enormous museum. And it's like, which, which, which door do you walk in to, <laughs> to look at this stuff and which floor do we go to first? It's just, and in, how many days do you spend there? <laughs> how many days? Yeah, yeah. You know, how many days should we get an Airbnb for? for yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary. What, what he did and I'm not surprised you know hearing that story about you know your friend taking time off work because like for, for the size and magnitude of everything that he did he still remained I don't know he, he comes across as someone you kind of know as well a very human person who grappled a lot with feeling like an outsider which is fascinating to and feel which is like then reflected in Lazarus as a show yeah exactly yeah. so he's I don't know it's um yeah, I completely get how um, how people can feel so close to him. You immediately do as soon as you dive into the world. You feel um, I don't know. There's an immediacy as you know to to the stuff. Yeah. yeah. Lazarus, presented by the production company, uh, is running from the 18th of May to the 9th of June. It has divided critics overseas. Uh, uh-huh. I love the fact that um, looking at some of the reviews from when it opened in London in 2016. Uh, the Times described it as pretentious rubbish, <laughs> uh, and I think gave it a one-star review. The where, Times, whereas uh, the Radio Times described it as at times dreamlike in quality. You feel not everything may even be meant to be understood, but in a way, it doesn't really matter. The overall effect is captivating, tense, and emotional. Five stars. Oh, yeah, see, uh, yeah. see, when I when I, when I read about that. Yeah. When I read about a show that just like polarizes people, that's the show I want to check out. I'm like, yeah. whoa! When you have <laughs> people have such extreme reactions, and I mean, even day to day, like we're in what our third, second, third day of tech, we're still people are still having these little epiphany moments, going, oh, I think that's maybe that's the thing that connects back to that other thing, and you know, I mean, we're all so excited about the show, and I, I'm I, there's part of me that has no doubt that there will be people that come along and go, what the hell was that? (laughs) And I can't wait for those people to see it because they'll either say it with a big frown on their face or they'll say it with a huge smile on their face. You know, what the hell was that? Yeah. But God damn, it'll make you think and feel something. Like that that is the promise I personally will make more than any other piece of more than any other musical that I've ever been a part of, the way the way it sort of reaches into you and makes you feel things and think about things, I think that's going to be the interesting thing is when people get out of the theatre and start talking about it after, you know, 45 minutes of stunned silence, of sitting there drinking their champagne going, what did you think? 
What was the... And all those sorts of... Once they actually start stringing sentences together, I think that'll be fascinating for the audience after the fact. Yeah. I even... I mean, just on that a little, uh, we did our final run in the rehearsal room the other week, which, you know, kind of lots of um, people come to see, attached to the company and, like, the sound department and all that. And um, it was just someone that came up to me after the show and just sort of said, like, with tears in his eyes and said, I have no idea what that was, but... (laughs) I felt so, you know, and yeah. he started telling me about what he'd been going through in his life and it was just like it really, like, hit home for him. And he goes, I don't understand it, but it, I thank you. You know, <laughs> it was, I think it's going to have that effect on people as I well. Agree. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of that. It's I'm, a show about life and the kind of mess of life, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's like you, do, you can't, you know, you can't grasp it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing it myself and having that kind of what am I experiencing reaction. So I've been chatting with Chris Ryan and Mike McLeish. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks Richard. Richard. Three triple R. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Pogson, who is the Special Project Manager with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, joining us to talk about Casino Royale in concert. Andrew, welcome. Good morning. It's great to be here. So for people who've not been to to one of these film screenings in which the in, the full force of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra is playing along live to a film, um, what's the best way to describe what the experience is like? Look, it's it's really hard to explain it because it really is greater than the sum of its parts and the parts are pretty you know, massive. I mean, there's the best part of 80, 90 musicians on stage and, and of course, to say nothing of all the the crew backstage. So, you know, a solid 100-plus people are involved and I was actually thinking on the ride here that, you know, how many arts, you know, performances do you have the best part of 100 people performing live? Like, it's actually really unusual when you think about it, but these shows, we we sort of do it every time, and and if you can imagine sort of a a massive screen over the top of the orchestra, and all of those musicians there performing live, um, it just gives such a massive heightened experience for a film that often people know and love, that's why they're there. Um, and actually what really fascinates me, a lot of people turn up and they've never seen the film before, which I think is the strangest thing. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I, I can't imagine seeing these films for the first time with a live orchestra, but, you know, people do it. And, and it's really quite emotional. I mean, I, I think it helps that there's 2,000 other people in the hall. You know, th- there's that thing where the lizard brain turns on and, you know, things feel more exciting, more, you know, it's like sport almost. Um, but, yeah, you, you have a situation where you're filled, you know, hall filled with fans um people are there to sort of you know cheer on the orchestra cheer on the music if nothing else and so it's really quite an amazing experience and uh, i just get chills the entire time well i went to my first one last year i i I, these kind of concerts have been happening for a while and kind of like it it and I, often I was thinking, well, I know the film really well. Why do I need to see it again? Uh, I know the score. I might own the, the the John Williams soundtrack to whatever film it might be. But So I went along to Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back last year. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I wasn't expecting was the 20th, 20th Century Fox fanfare <laughs> at the start of the film being played by the orchestra. Yeah, so when they suddenly everything. do the... like People laughed and yeah, yeah, I yeah. was taken aback and delighted. And, and then the fact that a film you know really well plays out, because the orchestra is playing live, they're loud. Yeah. So the film is then kind of surtitled yes. so that you can still follow the dialogue. Because if you don't know the film, then you're not going to necessarily hear the 
dialogue is certainly not as clearly as you would at home. Yeah, exactly. Because the focus is on the music. And hearing a score you know and love brought to life, kind of live and, and dramatic in front of your eyes and around your ears is a really great experience. I mean, it is amazing. I mean, with that Empire Strikes Back, I mean, I grew up with, with those original films, some of my favourite films in the world. And, you know, I thought I knew those scores absolutely inside out I'd, I'd played my LP and and you know CDs and whatever of the past so many times but when you hear the film live like you said so often a lot of the cues especially with action sequences the music's you know quite a, you know a long way back in the mix you can miss an awful lot and then all of a sudden when you hear it live you're like oh wow there's a beautiful oboe thing happening there or there's this all these other cool melodies that happen um, that you never really realized when you you know watched them the first hundred times so uh, you know for that reason it's a way of sort of discovering you know just what role that the orchestra plays in these you know in these films now the film that's next in the the film concerts live series is the james bond film casino royale mm. uh, uh which was the the, the I guess the start of the gritty reboot of James Bond, uh, as compared to some of the the camper uh, versions of the of the character and films that totally, we're yeah. more familiar with earlier in the the cycle of these films being made. Uh, tell us a little bit about the score. Of- well, I mean, it's it's David Arnold, composer. Uh, he came on board uh, right towards the end of... Um, now the actor has gone from me. Who was the previous Bond? Um, they all uh, Brosnan. 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 Um, so he came on for the last couple of Brosnan films. And the, the way he got the gig was that he was, uh, well, he was a film composer before this and uh, composed Independence Day from memory and uh, Stargate, actually. And he was a huge John Barry fan, John Barry being the original composer of the James Bond theme that everyone's really familiar with and uh he put together a i guess a fan album of sorts where he grabbed a whole bunch of um well-known pop uh singers and um put all of these um i guess covers of a lot of the bond songs and he orchestrated them put in a rock band and it was like really successful um and he sent the uh copies of this of this album to both john barry and the producers of bond just as a hey look i did this hope you enjoy it etc hoping that he might get a response and uh, John Barry got back to him and said, actually, that's really amazing. And the producers said, well, it's so amazing that we want to talk to you about coming on as a composer. So uh, he was on for, like I said, a couple of Brosnan films. And then Casino Royale comes up, which is, like you said, a sort of a reboot of sorts. Um, Bond is back to the beginning of his career in this. And you have uh, David Arnold come in with just absolute bread and butter uh, Bond composing so much so that that I liken him to the uh, composing equivalent of J.J. Abrams, where he's a fan of Star Wars, he's a fan of Star Trek, and you can tell that it's a movie made by someone who really understands what makes these franchises great. And that's the the deal with David Arnold is that he's a fan of Bond first, but then an amazing composer as well. And so he's able to bring this incredible sort of language of uh, John Barry and modernise it to be this sort of really lush orchestral thing, all of that great sort of raspy brass that you want out of a Bond film. And then lots of modern elements too, huge amounts of percussion and um, even electronic elements, but done in a subtle way so it's um it's really a fantastic score and it's sort of uh, helped greatly to sort of revitalize that franchise now 
uh, it's not just the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the MSO, that's doing these uh, film concerts live. Uh, pretty much all the orchestras around the company are doing them. Uh, Wasso uh, have done, yes, they've done, like yourselves, they've done the, the Harry Potter films, they've done the Star Wars films. I think they did Frozen not, not too long ago. Actually, I think it was uh, Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid. Yeah, Little Mermaid yeah. a few weeks ago. So, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of the, all the orchestras, are not only around the country, but around the world, world. Um, are doing these. And So um, the question is, why? Why is is this part of what a dumbing down, a popularisation of orchestral music? Is it about, uh, is it just about box office and, and bums on seats and bringing in uh, a new audience to, I guess, to uh, to al- then allow, uh, the, just to bring in box office kind of and funding? Um, we actually get asked that all the time and I, I find it a really fascinating question because um, I guess on some level it suggests that that these movie scores are sort of lowbrow and, and that at the end of the day the orchestras don't really enjoy playing them, they prefer to be doing other things. And the reality is is that sort of idea is, is sort of really old. It might have been true probably decades ago, but... Um, it's certainly not the case now. I mean, you, you think of that that great Empire score, you know, John Williams. I mean, he can go toe-to-toe with any composer, in my, in my opinion. Um, the orchestra certainly thinks so. They get to the end of, say, Harry Potter that you brought up. Um, and it is an incredible score. It's intricate. And um, the orchestration is um, musically satisfying. And... Uh, yeah, the, the orchestra often come up to me and, and people who are familiar with the score are just excited because it's it's fun doing this live. It's exciting. It's You're on the edge of this, your seat, both the orchestra is and the, and the audience. But um, it's challenging as well. So artistically speaking, outside of any kind of box office, I think it has huge amounts of merit um, and it certainly shows what modern orchestras are capable of in a modern setting. So, you know, the MSO still absolutely does a massive amount of classical music, new music as well. Um, but this is 100% in the wheelhouse of a modern orchestra. So I think it's important, regardless of anything else, that the orchestra is doing this sort of stuff. Then, of course, you, you spoke about new audiences, and that's the next major thing for, for at least me to um, and the orchestra to, to achieve, is getting new people into the hall. And I think that that's important for a bunch of different reasons. A, it, you know... It helps to sort of build that love of not only orchestral music, which is 100% true, but just live performance, I think, is is one of these things which, you know, in a, in a modern world is so, uh, so precious, I think, with so many digital ways to sort of experience things. Coming to a concert hall is super, super great. And I think uh, for a lot of people, they think orchestras are really, you know, it's something not for them. It's it's for their grandparents maybe or it's for, you know, uh, someone who isn't, isn't them. And I think this is why I say, no, actually, orchestral music is for everybody. And that's probably my main concern when I'm thinking about putting on shows, not just movie shows, but rock and pop and all sorts of other things, is that I honestly believe that orchestral music is for everybody. And if there's a genre you like, there's probably an orchestral, you know, concert for you um, that, you know, will sort of give you that experience of the 80, 90, 100 people all working together. And it's quite breathtaking. So... And then you, you mentioned the financial side of things. Absolutely, that's um, a part of it. But like I said, if it was just simply a money-making exercise, um, I think that there are probably all sorts of different things you could be doing um, to to just make cash. So if that was the only reason, then it's probably a very, very cynical way of um, <laughs> an arts company operating. Um, but I also think that... Um, 
audiences would feel that in the hall instantly. And I think this is the big difference, is that when fans come along to our events, they can feel that the people who have put it on, the musicians who are performing it, are fans just like they are. And if it didn't feel that way, I don't think people would come along because they don't want to be patronised, you know. Um, And I, you know, I think that sort of, that respect for the music and respect for the art is just as important on this as it is for a mile a week or whatever other shows we are doing. And and that sort of really comes through in the performance. Now, you spoke about uh, the value of getting new people into the hall to Mm. experience the orchestra for the first time. Is there any evidence to suggest that people who might come along to see Casino Royale in concert on either the 23rd or the 24th of May might then go, oh, wow, I've never experienced the power and the passion of a live orchestra. I'm going to now go to Mahler, Beethoven, etc.? Are these shows converting people into subscribers? Are they building your audience or are they fracturing your audience so that instead of having one overall audience, you now have a series of individual discrete audiences for different styles of work? That's a really good question. This actually comes up all the time, um, both internally and externally. Um, The short answer is that when orchestras all the way probably 20 30 years ago when they started doing pops you know those sort of you know great british rock or a night of uh, musicals or something like that there was absolutely this belief that if you got people in the door to experience an orchestra then they would naturally all at the end of the day move over to the classical side this idea that all roads lead to mozart and unfortunately or fortunately i actually think fortunately um that is not the case um people don't go to uh you know these sorts of presentations and then all of a sudden find themselves at the beethoven concert it does happen to a small degree um there is a a group of people that we can track over time that where that is the case but um at the end of the day it's not true now from my point of view that's not a problem um because my goal is not to ultimately trick people into uh turning up to listen to beethoven eventually um and, and I think, uh, I can't actually think of any uh, local Australian orchestra, but I have been overseas before where, you know, an orchestra has promised a night of Star Wars music and then they opened up with some Holst planets or something like that to sort of, you know, say, hey, by the way, guys, you know, there is there is this other stuff that you, you might be interested in as well. And I sort of think, once again, that's really a pessimistic idea of putting a concert together, ultimately saying, look, there's this other stuff we prefer, prefer to be doing, but fine, we'll play this for you. And no art is ever successful. <laughs> When coming from that point of view. So um, at the end of the day, we build audiences around what we're doing. So we build audiences in this um, instance around movies, um, more broadly sort of for more popular uh, repertoire. But I can imagine a situation that if you're a person where you come to the MSO once or twice a year to see a movie or to see a rock or pop thing, and you do that over the course of 20, 30 years as we sort of you know roll out things year on year, I can't imagine that by the time you get to whatever age it is where maybe you're retired, maybe maybe your kids have left home, whatever it is, that that you actually say, maybe I will try something different, you know. And from my point of view, it doesn't really matter. All I care about is are you coming to the orchestra? Um, I don't care if it what we're playing. It's if it moves you, if it it, it um, grabs you, it gives you an amazing night out, um, if it inspires you, then, I mean, what orchestra could say that you failed at that point. The other thing I wanted to acknowledge is just how um, impressed I am because my understanding is that uh, in terms of 
having the 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 film uh, watching kind of rehearsing the score uh, I, where I was sitting when I saw uh, Empire Strikes Back I could see that the conductor has a screen in front of them with kind of essentially the sound cues running in a steady stream and they have to synchronize the sound to the film and I was just like they have what just a couple of days to rehearse and pull this all together is that right yeah it's it's only about two days that we rehearse these programs which is quite amazing when you think about the best part of two and a half hours of music um gets rehearsed up in in the grand total of about 10 hours um so that's pretty amazing and uh, you know the way these film soundtracks were recorded originally i mean they're recorded over weeks where there's lots of stopping and starting and redoing things and and the orchestra is actually recreating that live um now that screen that you were talking about in front of the conductor this is the the secret to how the orchestra stays in sync with the film there isn't really any other trick and actually follows a um uh, both an old and a modern um hollywood scoring technique where um there's a few basic elements so just to try and paint it's a very visual thing so on radio it's hard to paint the picture but um so you've got the main screen that everyone sees they see that but the conductor has his own private little um computer monitor i guess in front of his, his stand and it has a whole bunch of additional information on it as well as the film um one of the key things is it has what we call a punch which is like a white dot that sort of punches up or flashes up on the screen and if you can imagine going flash 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 that gives you a a, a tempo a beat um, now that actually harkens back to an old hollywood thing where with actual film this is actual celluloid film um, film composers used to hole punch um, holes in the film and they do their calculations that you know 24 frames a second and I want a beat every second so every 24 frames I'll punch a hole in someone actually had to do this and then when they played the film on the back wall but um, behind the orchestra for the, the scoring session um, you get this flash of light as the projector projected through that hole punch and you do get this flash of light on the back wall and that would give you a tempo so that whole idea of the the punches still exists in modern film scoring it's just that once again we just have a white dot on the screen that sort of flashes away um, and then the other one is a streamer which is what you saw as things streaming from left to right and really what that is is that was brought in by composers like john williams who wanted more flexibility to be able to craft a, a musical performance out of the orchestra and not be so beholden to a set tempo tempo uh, that must be this precise calculation so it allows an orchestra to do what it does best which is sort of organically move and breathe and, and so on so what happens is a, is a colored line starts from the left hand side of the monitor through to the right hand side and as it slowly moves from left to right you know that you have to finish the piece of music by the time it gets to the right hand side so if you're a little bit behind you need to speed up a little bit if you're you know so on and so forth so you can adjust there and it allows that sort of more organic feel and and, and back to that art side of things allows a more artistic performance um, of a film score. I have to say I was thrilled at the experience I had last year when I went along to uh, uh, my first experience of a film concerts live presented by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. The next opportunity coming up is Casino Royale in concert. Andrew Polkson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been and a pleasure. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne.